We did, yes. We've been in London for the um, premiere of our good friend uh, who appeared on the pod, Mike Obdowitz. You remember, um, for old fans of the pod, uh, last ep we talked to the director of the film. Just goes to show the sort of the sway we have. I mean, hey, we do an interview with someone. What happens next? He's only over here doing a premiere in a huge Genesis theatre in the East End. Also, kind of ahead of the curve. I'm not, you know, far way away ahead of the parabola. Um, yeah, how was it, Paul? You were there. I was there with you. We we, we talked to Mike on stage, didn't we? As a sort of pre-game entertainment. Epic showing. A lot of people in. Had the Impora crew in. Big up to them. Yeah, yeah. They were around. Oblowitz loves it. So a good time was had by all. Ben, what's been going on in your life lately? Have you been on any adventures? Have you done any action sports? Have you travelled? What's your vibe? I've done a bit of travel. I've been, um, I think we were in Portugal last time that me and you were together. Since then I've gone on to, um, I went to Australia, back to the, the homeland. Mm. Um, went out there, did some surfing on the east coast of New South Wales. Um, had one particularly memorable experience where I was surfing this wave called Treachery Beach, which is like um, up in the Seals Rocks, pristine area. No one on the beach. I, you know, I was did the old nude kind of sort of stroll around because okay. you can. As an image. It was June. It was warm still. Four foot waves, crystal clear water. No one else on the beach, and the massive whales breaching just behind me. They were there for about two hours. My whole surf. So it was just me, the whales, naked, kind of hippie vibe. And uh, it was one of those moments that um, can still exist, especially in Australia. And I was like, ah, oh, this is incredible. And I'll stick with me for a long, long time. Wish you were there. No, I don't wish you were there. But it was pretty magical. Yeah, so that was a highlight. Cool. Paul, what you've been up? You've been uh, immersing yourself in the natural, the environment, the wider world? Yeah, it's been quite a bit going on. Um, I went from Plymouth, Devon, around the coast of Cornwall, out to Scilly, sailing in a cat. That was pretty cool. Saw a bit of wildlife, enjoyed that. Sailing will feature a little bit in this show because we have got an interview coming up with a couple of chaps who've just broken a record, sailed around Britain in an open dinghy, Will and Rich, they're coming up. But yeah, um, been doing a bit of sailing, haven't surfed much. I've started flossing again, so right. that's that's Not the dance or the no, no. dental care. Yeah, I had some, had, some, had some gum, bit of gum trouble, hashtag older dude, 43. Had a bit of gum trouble. I got into those little brushes that go between your teeth. Oh yeah, I've yeah. Seen people new, use. I'd never used. Floss, I'd never used technology. them before. Yeah, so I got into them, but then I ran out, and so I just went old school. And so just with, watching with, with a shoelace in front of the Netflix at night. Me and Hyde, picture the scene. Me and Hyde, kids in bed, That's Netflix, disgusting. flossing. And I, I challenge anyone out there in, in the poor listening world, has anyone ever flossed and not sniffed the sort of stuff that's on there that Detritus. sort of disgusting sort of rotting bent thick <laughs> ooze but at the same time sort of curiously sort of alluring just like ooh, like when you get a really really wafty bit from between the molars in the back 
kind of get like a little bit of a, I don't know, just a little bit of sort of a little kick from it, or was that maybe it's just me? I think it might be you. Although we did, uh, we uh, one of our colleagues that we work in the commentary world, we, who shall not be known, but uh, I did have the pleasure of watching him in the commentary booth, flossing, pulling out the bit, and unlike you, who smells it, he actually ate it. Mm. So that was disgusting. Let's find. Yeah, oh, well, you sounds like you've been busy, and and um, at this point, I like to. Thank Heidi for her patience and just for being you, Heidi. Well done. Um, and for anyone who's still listening, uh, we're going to go into check out some of the news that's been happening around the world of adventure and action sports and just generally in our lives um, through part of the show called... No, no. I know you're the kind of guy who likes, likes information. He likes being you know, equipped and tooled up with knowledge. I think you found something on Anne's Cottage website about um, excess baggage fees for sporting goods and equipment such as surfboards or kayaks, other outdoor and adventure gear. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that's right, Paul. Yeah, love data. Big data, small data. Um, I'm all over it. Um, that's the type of guy I am. And Anne's Cottage, which kind of does sound almost like some type of small lingerie shop that you might find in um, the main street of Truro or something. Oh, someone that has a really good cream tea. <laughs> yeah, really yeah. good cream tea. But it is in fact a um, yeah retail sort of outlet for surf shop and corner. But they put together. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they've done it themselves because it's a pretty impressive list of all the baggage fees uh, for all the different types of sports equipment. They rate uh, the airlines depending on who's the best and who's the worst. Um, topping the list was Singapore Airlines, while some of the Asian airlines like Asiana and China Southern and Korean are all really good. Um, but yeah, whether it's kayaks, golf clubs, surfboards, skis, snowboards. They put them all in a nice, very easily uh, infographic. You can go through, and I mean, baggage fees, um, I mean, they cost a lot of money, don't they, Paul? They I, suck. I've got the ultimate so, paid to avoid them. I can guarantee that you'll never spend another pound quid on baggage fees again. Stay at home, Andy. Yeah. Don't fly on planes. Don't choke up the stratosphere with your carbon guzzling shite to do your pointless activity. No one cares about. Stay home. Maybe go by sale. Mm-hmm. Or take your bike, but just advise you to stay home and think on, Ben. Think on. I actually went back for my uh, uncle's funeral, but whatever. Yeah, now, um, yeah, if you do travel, if you decided to uh, limit uh, your economic, environmental impact in other ways, uh, check out Anne's Cottage, check out the data, and you'll see exactly who to fly with and where you can save some money. Speaking of airlines, and you know, if you are like Ben, quite, quite self indulgent when it comes to your carbon footprint. We already chatted about middle seats and etiquette. We had some feedback from an Emporia Podcast super fan about the middle seat armrest etiquette. People have been chatting. It's sort of out there in the ether. Is it a dick move to put your seat back? What's the vibe on putting your seat back? Is it a no-no? Is it a read the vibe? Where do you where do you stand or rather sit on that topic, Monday? Well, interesting you say it, Paulie, because just coming back from that Australia trip, I had a, a elderly kind of uh, man behind me uh, who didn't um, didn't speak English, we couldn't really converse, but every time I did move my chair back, I wait, I mean, you don't do it at, at dinner oh, when you're eating. Oh, wait. I mean, that's a given. Um, so I didn't do that, but I did wait till the service had been cleared. Like, okay, now's the time to not have a spinal bifida. I moved my chair back and he started thumping the chair and I was like, whoa, whoa. And he was a, he was a straight, literally a straight up guy. Mm. So he, he just kept it, he wanted he, me to be upright and him to be upright. 
we had a chat. I explained that that wasn't going to happen, that I was going to move it back, and then I'll try to explain it, and I had to just eventually just lie back. So my, yeah, the answer to your question is uh, up for dinner, down for everything else. Paul, um, mm. in another nod to keeping it relevant uh, for the millennial age and in getting the young viewers in, you want to talk about an ancient Breton sailing smock. Is that is that correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. Yes, please. Um... Yeah, I recently went back to the old school and uh, got myself, yeah, a Breton sailing smock. If you, if you don't know the garment, it's like a heavy, kind of a canvas, sort of one piece with a little collar. The button's on the inside, the pockets are on the inside, so you can't catch it on anything. And it's a traditional thing from, from the northwest of France there. Um, it did remind me of, if you think back to Italian 90 and the classic England New Order song, World in Motion. Think of the John Barnes rap. He's wearing an Umbro training top. It, it looks and feels quite long like that, as in quite heavy, not breathable, not very functional, but it looks freaking cool. Um, I'm stoked on it. And I'm just wondering, that as everything goes back to the old school, cameras, you know, all the utes, they're getting into like vinyl again, everything's going like, oh dad, how does this cassette work? Is outdoor and adventure gear, are they gonna get out light, breathable, pff, high performance? Whatever. Is all that going to go out the window to just sort of hark back to um, a time gone by? I'd like, I'd like to see it. Yeah, well, I recently did a scuba diving trip and I bought one of those um, you used a diving iron, bell. iron yeah, diving bell in the full metal <laughs> tank. And I, uh, I mean, it, uh, <laughs> it looked cool in the Maldives, um, but I will say it was very, very cumbersome and the excess baggage alone, uh, it, was, it was prohibitive. Ben, you'd like to talk about one of London's famous landmarks of the Shard and some free climbing action. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of got a bit of a soft spot for those dudes that sort of tackle uh, sort of very dangerous um, feats in the public sphere when they're not allowed to do it. And yeah, recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, Urban Climber George King, only 19, uh, he climbed the Shard in London. That's 1,017 feet high. Uh, he free climbed it, so he um, yeah, no ropes or suction cups. I mean, who uses fucking suction cups to climb anyway? But yeah, he um, yeah, he made it to the top and got down. The police had a chat to him, but uh, let him off. They'd um, the, I mean, the previous year they they'd actually stopped the Alain Robert, the uh, French Spider Man, as he's known. Yeah, you heard about yeah. him? Yeah, I know him. He uh, they'd stopped him from doing it, but uh, old George King, he didn't he didn't muck around for official permission. He just he just scaled it at five in the morning, nailed it. Got back down. I will say, though, that the fucking Shard is the building I hate most in the whole world. I think it's an abominable piece of architecture hovering over the whole of London in a sinister, splintery, glass-like feel that every time I look at it, gives me the fucking heebie-jeebies. I think it's a sort of premonition of this sort of financial sort of dystopia to come, isn't it, that's going to visit on all of us. Let's keep it light, Ben. <laughs> yeah, but since when he's looking at a bit of sharp glass ever make you go, oh, that looks good. Never. Paul, I heard you want to uh, illuminate us on the tragic death of Austin Howe. One of the things that's made me go no, no, no is, yeah, Austin Howe, uh, 31 years old, one of the kind of big big personalities really, and particularly in free soloing as a climber, died last week in North Carolina, fell about 80 feet, free soloing, um, it's unclear whether he just something happened, the rock failed, or whether he just slipped, but anyway, he went down. Um, one of the things I did love about him, in particular, 
was he used to climb naked a lot, Ben. I something that would appeal to, you know, both of us, really. But there was just something that I really liked. There's a one video of him in particular. It starts quite tight. He's in the nude. He's got no climbing shoes. He's got no even, um, like, sort of little talc bag for his hands. He's just completely nude except for he's wearing a flat cap in this sort of style of um, kind of ACDC, like one of those sort of flat caps. Um, and apart from the cap, it could have been something from, like, sort of, 20,000 BCE. It could have been like a Neanderthal, like stepping out of the kind of subcontinent and ex exploring the Eurasian plateau. It could have, it could have been like that. It had a real kind of visceral sort of visuals to me. Um, and then it panned out. You saw him on this massive, massive cliff, nude with no ropes. Hats off, caps off. Austin Howe, rest in peace, mate. I'm not a climber, Ben. If I were, in my, in my mind, my mind, sort of mental climate that I am, I'm definitely a free soloist. Oh, obviously, that, that's what I'm... Yeah. Would you be a free, free no, soloist? No, no. You're I'm more of a rope guy. Yeah, I'm a sort of... You're more of an abseiler. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a rope guy, for sure. And and I would say clothes as well, given the choice. Okay, interesting. That's, I mean, we're different, Paul. Um, Ben, you'd like to talk about an avalanche in, a, in the Himalaya. no, no, no. no, no, no. More tragic news, which, uh, funnily enough, in this world that we live in, well, these adventure sports, it's 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 dangerous. And uh, yeah, that's sort of the tragic footage. New footage just came out of the. There was seven climbers died on um, Mount Danny, I think, in India's. In, anyway, India's second highest um, mountain in the Himalayas, and they found the GoPro um, camera just only recently, like about a month after the they they'd gone missing. And there, I mean, it was just this sort of tragic images of their last sort of, you know, steps on on, on Earth. So, yeah, I mean, it was a riveting kind of but weird look into what happened. You read about these avalanche deaths and you kind of, you take it in. But then when you see this GoPro footage and you see the little sort of emotional mementos, it's like kind of went, oh, this is, you know, this is real. These guys are literally putting their lives on the line to... Um, yeah, to do this shit. Speaking of the Himalayas, Paul, um, you got something on, uh, which has been oft in the news, Everest and the crowds thereof. No, no. Well, I think everyone probably saw that 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 video, that that footage of just a huge line of about hundred people on the Hillary step there waiting to summit summit Everest. Looked kind of minging. It reminded me a little bit of surfing in some ways. Some sort of crowded days when you you kind of out there to escape and get away from it all. And basically, there's there's a lot of other people also trying to get away from it all and rather than get away from it all, it all is there and it sucks. Um, yeah, so that footage of, footage of Everest, I think the sort of proliferation of climbing, stuff like that, I partly lay that on the shoulders of, of sites like Empora, of the editor, Jack Clayton. You know, he's not completely without no. without blame in no, this. No, no, Empora no. and us, we're making, you know, we keep yeah. making these things cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're making them popular. Um, I did see a little clip with a guy called Kenton Cool talking about that particular incident. He's Kenton Cool, kind of a name uh, in the climbing world. First of all, well, I had a fucking cool name, by well, the Kenton, oh, Kenton Cool. I had a teacher at school whose name was Fenton Cool. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> there, there we go. Um, Kenton Cool, he was yeah, did a little clip saying about why it's so busy, etc., etc. Um, just on that, that incidentally, at youth club at school, because I joined the first year halfway through, I joined at Christmas, 
um, they didn't have the register when I joined for, for, for spring term and I told the guy my name was Paul Cool um, and he believed me and I, I used to, back then this was 88 I had this yellow short sleeve shirt that said like Malibu Beach Club on the back and had a guy doing like a backhand Rio through it's a surfing manoeuvre through the word Malibu and it's like Malibu is a guy doing a turn and then it said like beach club D imagine how sort of cool I thought I was I was called Paul Cool and had a yellow button up shirt with Malibu Beach Club and a guy doing a backhand re-entry fucking killing it Monday is this just it's a trip at what stage in this ego it must have just come fully formed out of the world that gives that gives an insight doesn't it into um, you know how you get to be a podcast anchor <laughs> a chilling um, insight yeah. I would say um, but just let's talk about climbers expeditionists particularly British ones what is it with the Britons and their people that do feats of high mountaineering or high latitude. They're never called like Wayne or Gary, are they? They're never from Basildon or sort of Wolverhampton or Coventry, are they? They're always sort of very partial. There's been a lot recently about Oxbridge admissions. We had the sort of master of Stowe College getting in the spot of bother about his comments. I think we should change the conversation. Why? Are we, when are we going to open up North Pole, Antarctica, Himalaya. When are we going to open up to the sort of to the to common man? Why is everyone to the Kev to the Kevins of the world? Why is everyone called Raul Boffleton Choffleton that's like walking into Antarctica? Ranulph. Yeah. Where's what? What's that about? Where's why is that Monday? I'd like to see that change. I'd like to see a bit of diversity in terms of background of people walking to the pole, please. Yeah, you want to. That sort of exp exploration glass ceiling, you want to, you want to smash it. It's just a bit of social and economic well, equality. Like, just your every man's like your pool calls of this world. <laughs> they should be given a shot to. Empora Podcast. Joining us down the line now, we have got Will Hodgson and Rich Mitchell, and they recently completed a circumnavigation of Britain in a 16 foot open dinghy. It's a 1400 nautical mile journey. And it made the news for a record, breaking a record and a very impressive effort. 15 days and four hours. And welcome to the show, Will and Rich. Hello there. Hi, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, first things first, obviously, the big question. Why, guys, why? Why punish yourselves? <laughs> why, why did you do it? Well, I think that we... Um, that's, Everyone sort of tries to find their find their place in the world, and um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I grew up in a, a racing, sailing, racing family, um, but yeah, but I didn't really sort of gravitate to sort of racing around the boys at the weekend um, and, and that sort of scene. And Rich and I were doing kind of quite a bit of like adventure sailing around the country, and yeah, and basically a new, mutual friend told us about when the last record was broken, so five years ago. And uh, yeah, I think it was like a light bulb moment for us where we combine the sort of racing background with the sort of long term, you know, adventure sailing aspect. And the, the, the amalgamation of the two was like perfect. And I think we just, yeah, we sat in a pub and just said, we could so do this, you know, this is a, just the perfect challenge, like for us and our experience and backgrounds. And, and yeah, we just thought we could really give it a go. I'd like to find out the percentage of all those adventures that often start in the pub. I reckon the percentage of 
the genesis of these crazy ideas about 90% was starting a pub, would you reckon, Rich? Yeah, well, I think quite a lot of adventures starting a pub because it's such a nice place to do anything. You're warm, you're cosy, you're a little bit oiled up and everything seems possible. And you're not really thinking of how uncomfortable you're going to be, uh, how miserable it's going to be at times, how cold, how wet or anything else. Uh, basically, everything seems possible. Uh, I've said to Will a few times, it's the worst possible place to have good ideas. But it doesn't make things happen, I guess. Um, just thinking of sort of comforts and kind of conveniences, particularly, we like to tackle the big questions. How did you poo, guys? What was what was your number two situation? How did you get that done? Uh, yeah, do you want me to say that one, Will? Yeah, I'll take this one. Yeah, it's pretty tough. I reckon there's... Uh, it's, Bucket? Yeah, of all your, you must have a few number two stories with different people doing different adventures, but I think ours... Yeah, it's a pretty tough. So we've got to, so we've got our dry suit on. It's really, you know, there's a lot of water coming into the boat. We've got to be careful about, you know, keeping dry and um, yeah, not exposing ourselves too much to the elements and stuff. So the number two was a big deal in the day. We had to like prepare the boat for it, and prepare ourselves, and and yeah, we had basically we had sort of custom dry suits which kind of opened up around the middle, um, but we had to basically. We had to sort of get those dimensions, to get on a, a certain point of sailing, sort of sailing downwind with the waves, and yeah, and then we had to basically strap on a harness and in a, in a chest going into the middle of the boat, and then basically hang out over the side. So one guy's on one side of the boat, the other guy's on the other, hang out over the side, and try. And then the helmsman is like really trying not to get a wave blasting up the up the guys backside and then basically flooding the the legs of the dry suit which did happen a couple of times and it's pretty serious because it takes a long time to dry all that stuff out afterwards so it's a real we really sort of built up so we had we could only really do one a day and we both basically did it one after another and we kind of set the whole boat up for it and did it um and in, in the end we did quite well i mean you would have seen you know the the situations where we did number twos in was just unreal because you know so when we're in a storm and we're surfing down pretty big waves, keeping the speed up, keeping the boat moving, and and when you've got to go, you've got to go. So we had these just frightening situations of one guy hanging with his ass hanging out over the edge, and and the helmsman we're basically surfing down pretty big waves, and uh, yeah, it was it was pretty hairy at times. Who who's the sensible one? Has, have you got like a bit of a uh, you know, in any, any kind of duo, you got like you know Ben and I got our, our dynamic. Did you guys have you got one who makes decisions? Have you got the wild card? Did you did you get into any? Did you sort of hate each other at any point, or you know have any fights? What? How did it go down between the two of you? Uh, I mean, Will's sailing experience is way greater than mine. So in terms of kind of setting sails and stuff, kind of bow down to him. But when it came to decisions on whether we were going on a reef or not, we both when one of us said. I think we need to reach the sails then, you know, generally that's what we went with. So, the, yeah, the dynamics between us were really good. I mean, I mean, probably large part due to the fact that one of us was sleeping most of the time. Uh, occasionally, both of, us, both of us were sleeping. Uh, so, yeah, and that, I think that's when dynamics were the best. Uh, you know, it, 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 went, it was really good, actually. We didn't have any crosswords or anything like that the whole time. I think because we're both both pretty chilled out and you know we're in situations where actually we had to get on really well with each other otherwise things would have gone or could have gone really badly wrong so yeah no yeah incredibly yeah unfortunately for 
the media no tales of wanting to kill each other or throw each other out of the boat. I mean, neither of us had been in some of the situations that we found ourselves in, and it was reassuring to both of us that the other could keep really calm in those situations and just get through it. Uh, I mean, well, you might come on to it, but, you know, the time we are in the North Sea, we were 60 miles offshore in a real blow at night, taking on loads of water onto the boat. We were both freezing cold, both very, very tired. Uh, and we knew that it was going to be 22 hours before we kind of came into, you know, close contact to land. And, and yeah, just both kind of switched on or, you know, got, got into the zone and just dealt with it. And that was, that was really good to know. And it kind of puts in good, really good stead for the rest of the trip that, you know, we could rely on each other. That was, that was really nice. And just thinking still on kind of, we'll come to the actual voyage itself. I'm just thinking about kind of operations on the boat itself. What, what does cooking look like? What are meal times? I'm guessing you're not having kind of nachos or, or pizza. You know, what's, how does that go down? Did, did, could you cook or was, were you eating just, you know, kind of space food out of a packet? Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, food, we had uh, freeze-dried uh, expedition meals, uh, which were really, really good, actually. I mean, really, really good. And that was, yeah, like Will says as well, that was a highlight of our day. Tea time, you know, about five o'clock I'd start saying, only an hour till tea time. Uh, uh, yeah, so I mean, we took it in terms to cook. Uh, and sometimes, I think <laughs> it was a bit of an ordeal at times, uh, depending on the weather, but it was always worth it, just, yeah, having a hot meal. So yeah, so we, I think pretty much, I mean, pretty much everything we took in terms to, you know, Will might be staying, I'll be looking at the tablet and working out where we're going or vice versa and, you know, maybe he did a bit more of the passage planning than I did. Uh, but in general, I don't think there was many things where one person that one person did exclusively that I can think of. And you mentioned you mentioned you had a tablet there. That I guess that's your chart plotter was on there. Did you have like AIS anything like that or VHF? Could you could you could you see what other vessels were doing? What was your what was your sort of navigation equipment like with that in terms of electronics? Yeah, do you want to do that one, Will? Yeah, so we had um, yes, yeah, so we in the in the kind of year lead up to this, we were trying different like techniques, and because we were, because basically we were the first team to do this non-stop and unassisted, it, it changed everything with the electronics because it meant that we we had to be self self-sustaining with our power. Um, so the other team just took lots of batteries and then swapped them out with the, their onshore support teams, whereas we had we couldn't do that. So we had to have a pretty elaborate sort of solar and, and battery. Um, set up on the boat, uh, which we did lots of testing and 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 yeah, we were really pleased that actually all worked. We didn't we didn't even have to switch onto our secondary units in the end. Um, but yeah, uh, we basically had a we had a trip computer on the front, like a chart plotter on the on the mast, and that was giving us just numbers, so he- heading and bearing and you know speed and the estimated time of arrival to the next waypoint and all that stuff, and that was numbers and that didn't draw much. Um, uh, which was good, and then we had yeah, had a tablet, you know, basically just a normal sort of ten-inch tablet in a waterproof um, hard case, and that we had like um, yeah, had all the Admiralty charts and, and because of the built-in GPS in it, uh, that was great. So we just basically flashed that up every hour just to check there was no hazards along the route, tidal stream information on it, so we could see if the current was against us or if it was with us, or and we could plan. You know, if we saw the tide was going to change against us, then we could. Yeah, yeah, make some make some tactical sort of decisions, um, sort of on the fly, 
and uh, yeah, and then we just then we had a, like a big uh, Pelican case that we uh, had power going into, lots of USB ports, so we could basically charge that. Um, totally, you know, totally waterproof charging of the tablet inside this case. And um, yeah, miraculously, that all survives. A bit of waves washing over this Pelican case and looking at it, going, you know, crikey, I hope, you know, if that fails, like the whole thing's over, basically, you know, if we can't navigate, we'd, we'd have to come in. So yeah, it was really great that all that stuff worked and, and lasted. Talking about the actual voyage itself, so you left, you left Falmouth and you went clockwise around Britain, so round Land's End, up through the Celtic Sea and then. Um, across the top of Scotland and back down the North Sea. Could you just tell us some sort of highlights from that? Uh, maybe some, you mentioned that incident in the North Sea, but any any particular storms or just really heavy going? Yeah, so we actually, yeah, so we actually did from Sulcan and um, we actually and we went anti-clockwise around. Okay, so <laughs> I've done my research. Yeah. Yeah, cool. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, don't worry. Yeah, so we spent, yeah, yeah quite a bit of time sort of working and we worked, we were, you know, we were thinking going clockwise, anti-clockwise, right up until the last sort of hour, in fact, we were debating that. And, um, but yeah, so we had, you know, we had sort of three storm sort of instances. Yeah, the one in the North Sea, that's probably the scariest for us. And then again, we were sort of in the Irish Sea and had another one where, yeah, it was, we knew it wasn't going to last long. We discussed it with the onshore team if we were going to go for it or not and we all decided yeah we we're just going to go for it because it wasn't it was only going to last sort of six hours maximum um but that was pretty again pretty scary because we knew we knew it was going to be bad and um yeah and it, sure enough the waves just you know the waves grew really quickly and um and we were basically taking on more water than we could pump out and uh, and it was getting pretty concerning, and you know, luckily it, it died off when it said it was going to. Um, but yeah, it was. I think what and what we sort of what what all these incidents showed us was there's just no way you can sleep in such a small boat that's so wet. There's just no chance to sleep. And I guess we didn't factor that in enough, so we went for long periods without sleep. And um, yeah, and it was just managing that was you know trying to trying to do this from you know, a technical point of view trying to think about our tactics and sailing itself and but also coping with no sleep um yeah that that was pretty that was pretty tough but of course you know there's a lot there's a lot of really amazing times with um you know the marine life and um yeah i just i was just flicking through collating a lot of video footage just to, just to before we got on this call and um, yeah just the dolphin experiences and whales I mean you know we we thought we'd be lucky if we saw a whale and in the end we lost count of the amount of whales we saw you know and not just in northern Scotland but it's far down south as sort of Great Yarmouth and you know places you wouldn't expect to see a whale you know we were, we were yeah blown away by, by, by that in British waters you know and and Rich you're if I'm right, you're a marine biologist and you've worked in fisheries and, um, you know, you're, you're quite well published in, in that scientific field. What what was your take on that? Just, I mean, obviously you weren't studying it, it was more anecdotal, but what did you, what were you surprised about that what you found out there and the general health of the seas? I think it's difficult to look at the surface of the sea and, you know, make a good approximation of how healthy it is. 
I, I was I was surprised about how much life was still being supported in the North Sea. Uh, that, I mean, that, I think that's probably the richest area of wildlife that we saw on the way around. But yeah, at the same time, I, I kind of know how depleted that's been, and so it kind of made me think, wow, you know, what would this have been like at a baseline level? You know how you know how many whales would we have seen, or how many seals, or you know, would we have seen the fish boiling with sea kind of thing? So. Yeah, in terms of looking at it objectively, it's pretty tricky. But, but I mean, we know that you know it's been heavily overfished for for a long, long time, and and yet it's still supporting this rich variety of life. So, yeah, I think that's my take. Is it's still there, and you know, you know, nature's very resilient. Perhaps if we let it do its thing a bit, you know. I, just the North Sea blew my mind, actually. Various sort of feats of endurance or things like that to do with the ocean at the moment. I'm talking about the plastic issue, it's obviously, you know, a, a big and a bad issue. A cause that everyone wants to get behind. No one really wants to talk about fishing at all. And you know, can we, should we be steering the conversation more that way? What what can we do about that? Why, why is everyone talking about plastic all the time? Yeah, I mean, I think people are talking about plastic all the time now because, event, you know, they eventually became a... Uh, so David Attenborough started talking about it, and, and previous to that, even though the information was there and the government was aware of it, there was no, you know, the government didn't feel they'd have to deal with anything because there's no public awareness. So I mean, and then obviously that's a good thing, it's a great thing that there's general public awareness of it and you, the issue of plastic is, is being dealt with. Uh, and, but, I, but I think, yeah, we shouldn't narrow what we're looking at. You know, there's a number of enormous threats at the moment, to wildlife in general, you know, there's got species extinction, acidification uh, of the oceans, which is a massive one, things like overfishing and, you know, or just, uh, you know, general use of resources, uh, you know, overuse of resources, and, you know, and obviously climate change impacting all of those as well. So, uh, it's, a, it's a tricky one, really, and I don't think if there's an easy answer, uh, you probably would have got around to it. Trying to look at things, trying to look at everything we do in a different rather than focusing on one thing that we can do. You know, looking at how we live and, and actually the whole way we live is probably not 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 very good for where we live. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think as well that the I think that the, the plastics issue is that it's quite a long recovery period to get um, you know to to stop fishing. Uh, is one thing, and, and for sh fish stocks to recover is is a, a totally different time frame than the time frame it is to have to remove all plastics and microplastics that sort of affecting the whole ch food chain. And it's the the fact that you know that the amount of plastic going in isn't going to stop overnight, and every and because it lasts for so many hundreds of years, it's one of those problems. It's just even if everybody stops now, it's not gonna, it's not gonna solve the issue overnight. So I think it's, it's, it's two very different timescales on, um, on 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 trying to sort out the situation. And um, yeah, and I think that's look. I mean, when we started this project, we were pretty sort of narrow-minded, focused on the challenge itself, and us trying to beat this record. And and yeah, when someone said, look, you know, you're getting a lot of publicity here, it'd be really cool if you could use this for something. And yeah, no, it sort of it made us step back a bit and think, yeah, Croaky, this is a really great opportunity to do something with this exposure. What's a smart foundation? I got us got on board and they said and they've really helped us push the 
push, uh, push the awareness and um, and donation and charity donation in this field, um, supporting the Isle and I and um, Surface Against Sewage. I don't think the majority of people in the UK appreciate how much cetacean marine life there is out there and we got to experience it firsthand and we've got lots of footage of it and I think if we share that with people and say wow you know you don't people don't realize how lucky we are and uh, and then also what effect we're having I think it you know, certainly changed my changed my outlook on on things yeah I think that that's one thing I'm, I'm quite passionate about trees it's one of the things I always harp on about and it's interesting, it wasn't me who said it, but when we were coming down the Western Isles of Scotland, I mean, they are really beautiful, but as Willie said, there's just no trees. You know, so, yeah, I mean, Britain is beautiful, I mean, it's truly beautiful, but it is lacking in things, I think. And, uh, it, <laughs> yeah, it's quite depressing when you think about it, actually, so I won't harp on about it, but some, you know, what we're looking at is actually a natural disaster rather than what should be there. Uh, it's, prob- that's, it's a bit of a downside. Thing. There's probably a whole other podcast in that, but I'm guessing. <laughs> have you read Feral by Monbio about sheep and and deforestation in Britain? Yeah, brilliant book. Yeah, sheep are not my friend. <laughs> I suppose the outlook. We're talking a bit about Will. When when you get back from this this tremendous uh, achievement, and I know um, Rich, you're up in the in Scotland with your forest schools is your job, and I think Will, you're a, you're a geologist in the office. How's How's life after it? How's getting back to the mainstream in the real world? Is it is it more difficult, or can you take in fresh insights from your from your travels? Yeah, do you know, I think one of the things that really got through to me was uh, speaking to the people at the Water Smart Foundation and how how things can actually happen, how you can find money to push causes and, and make things happen, and that that's really made me want to come back here and. You know, and, and look for funding for things that I'm trying to do. So that, speaking to them, really impressed, you know, and how passionate and stuff they're about what they're doing. They are, and that that really rubbed off on me. So I've kind of come back fired up to to try and make things happen a bit quicker than I have done. Uh, so yeah. So in terms of that, you know, I think I've, instead of coming back and you know having a lull after it and being a bit down, I've actually come back really really ready to go and try and do some more things. And the only other thing I'd say is, yeah, I've come back with pretty sore feet, so it seems to be getting slowly better, but I think all the nerves in my feet have, for some reason, have become a bit agitated. <laughs> I've got really painful feet in the evening, apart from that. Those, those are the two things I've come away with. Yeah, well, that's funny, Rich, you say all that, because I'm, I'm feeling kind of different. Rich and I have caught up, actually, for quite a few days since we got back. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in a little bit of a low man if I was honest like I, I don't know well you're different so you're outside in the wood with the kids and that's good whereas I'm kind of in the office with my Excel spreadsheet up and um, yeah it's it was <laughs> yeah. the same routine yeah I kind of wish I was kind of working on the boat a bit still and near the sea I think I just need a few days to sort of get back in the sort of normal life routine but what I am enjoying though is having my own toothbrush I don't think it's been mentioned enough that Rich lost his toothbrush on like day four I mean to share a toothbrush one Ooh. toothbrush Ooh. so that's um, yeah getting my own toothbrush back that's been pretty good that, yeah. big highlight of coming back that's how well we've gone um, and what's next for you guys have you got another another adventure in brewing you must you must have thought about the next move I can't imagine you're going to hang up, hang it up here What's what's next I don't know. I think 
when we were out there, we both said, right, this is it. We don't want to come out and do things that make us feel miserable and cold and wet. And then, uh, yeah, so I've been back, well, we've been back a week or so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah ideas are going through my head. So I, I don't think it's going to be a sailing adventure for me. I'm not sure. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's difficult. We're both fairly adventurous people, and it'd be hard to just say, that's it. But I think in the short term, sorry, medium term, it's definitely uh, doing some adventures with families, you know, get, getting them involved. Yeah, I, I mirror that a bit. Yeah, I think um, there's definitely uh, there's definitely part of us thinking, crikey, you do not want to put ourselves in this position again. It was like, yeah, there was many days where it was pretty miserable uh, being so wet and cold the whole time. But, um, but I think, yeah, I don't know. There's lots of... There's lots of things that could be done. I mean, like the, the Holy Grail, the, the, the dinghy sort of adventure sailing is, is is the Atlantic and like doing first do a transatlantic crossing, which which sounds crazy, but actually it's not maybe quite as crazy as it seems because the, um, say, going from the Canaries to, say, to the Caribbean, St. Lucia, it's about two and a half thousand miles. So it's about so it's another sort of thousand miles longer than what we've just done. But you know the currents with you, it's a lot warmer. Uh, the wind's always behind you, and um, I think it's. I think if we could do around Britain, I reckon we could do a transatlantic. Is my I reckon is my thought. But we're not. But we're not. We're not. We're not talking about that right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a. It's a contention idea. <laughs> Sounds like we are. <laughs> there, there you go, Rich. Yeah, maybe that's not, that's not one I should, we should share with the podcast. But. You, you might you yeah. might want to pack two toothbrushes for that one, Rich. <laughs> yeah, two toothbrushes and a little bit more uh, toilet roll, I reckon. <laughs> and yeah. how can people donate still? It's still open. How can, they, how can they get involved and show their support for your causes? Yeah, nice one, guys. Thanks. Yeah, so, okay, so we've got a website, which is uh, nippygggroundbritain.com, and nippygg is N-I-P-E-G-E-G-I, and there's also a Virgin Giving page, and, yeah, and so you, through the Virgin Giving page, uh, if you find nippygg Round Britain, yeah, you can donate to, um, yeah, to the RLNI and uh, Surface Against Sewage, and who are all backed by the um, WaterSmart Foundation, and yeah and pure ionic water they've been like really great got to give those guys a shout out have really helped us massively um to really make this project a, a success that's been or a podcast hey ben uh podcast mastermind time i'm the reigning champ and still on the naturalist and explorer john muir you've nominated a new topic which is surf rage should you win through? What tune would you like to play out the show with? I'm going to go with um, The Cure, Boys Don't Cry. I'm going to go... That classic chestnut. Yeah, I'm going to go for De La Soul's uh, classic anti-drug anthem, Say No Go. Okay, let's get down to business. You've chosen Surf Rage and your five questions on Surf Rage starts now. Uh, probably famous, probably the most famous surf raid incident happened back in the 2000s where an Aussie surfing legend, I think first of all he, he slapped uh, a kid in the water whose, whose father then revisited a vicious display of violence back on the legendary Australian surfer, inventor, kind of shortboard era. Who was that surfer? 
Uh, the surf was Nat Young. Um, yes, it was for Huntley Beaton. Correct. Um, uh, at Angari, I might add, might add. Question number two. There's uh, a famously localised area in LA South Bay, very close to some very famous you know, places well known to surfing, uh, that's been home of a lot of local incidents during the years. What's, what's the name of that area? Oh, Ooh, he's on the back foot here. I don't know this. Struggling. I don't there. know this. Uh, is it where the Dogtown boys used to hang out? No, this is down from there. Like where all the rich kids the sort of trust the ferians and you can't surf there? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Palace Verdi's estate, Lunada Bay's the break. Yes, that's the one, yeah, that's okay. the one. Thought you might get that. Um, okay, uh, Tamarind Bay in Mauritius, a famously localised, famously localised wave. Um, what is the name of the, the crew they have given themselves? Does it, have, give, does it involve shorts? Yeah, yes. Is it the black shorts? Well, no. Is it the black and white shorts? The red shorts? The, the blue shorts? Just like, just gonna give you one final guess. I'm gonna need quite a lot of chances. Yeah. It's the white shorts. <laughs> so the black shorts are the famous, the Hui, the Hawaiian kind of North Shore like locals, and, and the white shorts are the Tamarind Bay locals. Okay, um. What were the J Bay ones called? They had some black vests or something. Anyway, fast. Okay, Jerry Lopez character Vince in North Shore, who's kind of like the head of the Hui, um, one of the sort of younger, more aggressive members of Stolen Rick Kane's staff, says, let's pound them. What does Vince say in return? Uh, he says, no, that's not a good idea. Well, he says, you took his stuff, you pound them. I'm gonna give you a, I'm gonna give you half of the sentiment, but okay. Uh, lastly, recently, uh, case went to court in Australia, uh, featuring famous top top uh, competitive female pro from the 80s and 90s, and a well-known local. Who is that local, and what's unusual about his craft? Um, I think you're referring to the alleged case of um, Dan Thompson's dad. Yep. Uh, of Tomo Surfboard's fame. Sure. Um, Who was the female pro surfer? Jodie Cooper. Correct. Friend of the pod and a good, close personal friend of mine. Um, and what was the question? What's uh, unusual? He, yeah, he was on a surf mat. Oh, uh, a surf mat. What's a surf mat, Ben, for people that aren't accustomed? A surf mat's an inflatable device that uh, often old people and kids wear. Where yeah, so it's like a, a, a inflatable raft, effectively, and guys go out wearing flippers. This particular man goes out wearing flippers, drops in on people, and bashes women. And you can go really fast as well. You don't have to do that on a surf mat, but yeah. this particular guy chooses to. Okay, well, I'm going to give you. Didn't you did so well there, really? You got two out of five, really, didn't you? Basically. Two out of five. Okay. Oh, wow. But, yeah, a little bit let down, but you know, it's been a lot, been a lot of podcasting. We've... Obviously, we were appearing live last night on stage, so yeah. Andy's sort of feeling it a bit. Reaching into my podcast rope. So yeah, we're back to John Muir, the uh, famous one of the early conservationists. Um, he was also we talked about in the last episode, I think, about the Sierra Club. Yeah. Um, which he formed, but uh, with whom did he form the Sierra Club with? Who did he found it with? Was it President Roosevelt? No, it was Professor Henry Sanger. Okay. Uh, where was John Muir born? I need a... Um, in East Lothian in Scotland. 
through Dunbar was the Dun- name. Dunbar. Obviously a theme. Yeah. Uh, no, and what did he die of? Um, just being a legend. No, let's say a stroke. Uh, pneumonia. Okay, fair enough. It makes sense. Um, in September 1867, as you might well know, he undertook a walk of a thousand miles yep. from Kentucky to Florida. Yep. What was the name of that book called that encountered that journey? Ah, oh, read it. I've got it and I read it. And he got malaria on the way. Give me just a little bit of a clue, like the clues in what I told you about. It's like the long walk, the walking to Florida, or something like that, isn't it? It's like it is something like that. So that's not it. The long like walk that. to. It's called walking to the. Walking. A thousand mile walk to the Gulf. A thousand mile walk to the Gulf, because it's exactly what it is. Okay. Uh, in which month of the year? is um, John Muir Day celebrated in Scotland. June. Close, April. <sighs> it's uh, started on April 21. So I think we're two each, is that, is that correct? Mm. A tiebreaker, or maybe we just... I think I got one. Um, yes. Five, five did. questions? Yeah, five questions. One right, you got the uh, East, East Lothian. Lothian. Yeah. yeah. Okay, money, you're taking it. We're okay. going to hear... Boys Don't Cry by The Cure. Well, that's going to wrap things up. Good show. Thanks to Rich and Ben of Nipagigi, who circumnavigated Britain in an open dinghy, broke a record, just two all-round ledge knowledgeable people, and inspirations, even to sort of better, kind of older people like us. Very inspiring, weren't they? They were. They were uh, engaged and smart and adventurous. And uh, with a good sense of humour, lots of poo chat, which of course is a Classic. hallmark of the pod. Mm. Yeah, very impressed with that. Um, yeah, enjoy them immensely. Well, that's going to bring things to a close. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe, tell a friend, leave us a review. Don't forget to read my article about Tenerife that's up on Emporo at the moment, which is going great guns in yeah, terms of traffic. It's, it's catching that wildfire. And I mean, you went and did all those things. You're Ooh. free diving and you're, you're, you're cycling. Oh, man. You're, um, yeah, you did it all. I mean, I remember trekking, we were, rock trekking, climbing. rock climbing. I remember we were there because you, you were just doing that. The carnival. The whole time. Okay, you did the carnival. Eating vegan night. food in the Lebanese restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, it's famous for its vegan restaurants, Tenerife. I did all that. So, yeah, check out my article on Tenerife and enjoy yourselves. It's later than you think. Love you, bye. I'm